Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to four o'clock. Thanks to Chris for great voices. And now it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I'll be here until six this evening. Today, the second part of my interview with activist Hall Greenland. And this time he starts off in Paris in May 1968. The war in Syria, why it's not a civil war, with Dr Tim Anderson, who's from... Hands off Syria and also an academic at Sydney University. Chaos in Sri Lanka with Dr. Brian Sinimaratno, a human rights activist since he was a teenager. He's now in, well into his 80s. Victory for women domestic workers in Timor Leste, a project assisted by a feeder. And I'll be speaking with Sam Bond. Jailing of Palestinian prisoners. Jailing of Palestinian children making them into prisoners in Israeli jails. And I was speaking with one of the presenters of Palestine Remembered, Yusuf Al-Rimawi. But first, he is here, Mr Kevin Healy. It's been a while, but it's finally happening. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, several weeks, including when all these supposed-to-be secret cabinet papers turned up in a cabinet. Must say I couldn't see the fuss, because they are cabinet papers. Where else would they be? They reinforced the compassion of our big economic guru and then Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boat, Scuttle Them More Less Sun, and then big economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, and big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses. But Scuttle Them said, revelation he ordered his department to break the law so legal asylum seekers would lose their rights had nothing to do with him. It was a memo from his department. He proved his innocence. Uh, so, so why did your department send you the memo, Scuttle, then? Because I ordered them to. Uh, so it had nothing to do with you. Nothing. It was the policy we were elected on to, to, to break the law. Of course not. We made breaking the law the law. Uh, So you agree with the ACTU's Sally McManus that at times people have to break the law. There is no relationship between good breaking the law and evil breaking the law. Evil union terrorists breaking the law and breaking the law that became the law to stop evil refugee terrorists. And the secret papers down at the op shop also revealed that all people under 30 are dole bludgers avoiding work so they can whoop it up on the exorbitant dole that keeps them living the high life in their comfortable little gutters. Tiny and Joe have to get some sort of marks for compassion when the voice of reason suggesting starving under 30s to death might be a touch extreme was Kevin and screws the workers. Refugees, asylum seekers and migrants across the globe were also heartened knowing their future was secured when US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the poor declared to a journal he was the least racist person you will ever interview, ever, ever leaving us to ponder the quality of the interviewees on that channel. But then we are dealing with a genius, confirmed by no less reliable a source as the genius himself, telling us he is, like, smart, like, 
Well, he proved his genius by declaring the US of recognising Jerusalem as the capital of his very, very, very close friend Zion had taken Jerusalem off the table. <laughs> sure, now the issue's bound to go away. Real like smart like. He did have a medical check from which the doctor concluded he wasn't demented, surely a classic case for a second opinion. But it might not technically be dementia. He might just be insane. Although the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review tells us day after day after day after day, Donald was really like smart like in slashing taxes for the filthy rich and True Blue Aussie has no choice but to slash taxes for the filthy rich so the unclean poverty stricken can be better off. It's so altruistic of the filthy rich, isn't it, that their sole motive for slashing the taxes they don't pay in the first place is to make life a little better for the unclean, poverty-stricken, selfless, selfless, wonderful people. But how heartless, how cruel the converse of that equation. Governments asking the filthy rich to pay just a little bit of tax, like the European Union launching an inquiry into Swedish furniture frustrator IKEA, claiming it had avoided about 1 billion euros through a Dutch tax arrangement. Well, we saw the dreadful consequences of that cruelty. The IKEA founder and big supremo Ingvar Kamprad promptly died. Ultimate proof of the dangers inherent in hitting the filthy rich with the dreaded prospect of having to fork out a little from their lazy avaricious workers hard earned. I hope those EU tax grabbers are satisfied. On the IKEA founder dying of tax phobia, last heard the funeral had to be delayed as the undertaker was having all sorts of trouble putting the coffin together. Still on the Capitalist Review, front page headline yesterday, Women Paid More Than Men. Yes, deep investigative reporting has unearthed one case. Women engineering graduates are being offered more than their male counterparts, making it naturally front page news. Then there was the tennis, when after the first week, when all the True Blue Aussie champions promoted by the channel, which breathlessly brings it all to us, have sunk without trace, they get down to the real thing, which includes the ads, we have to suffer ad infinitum, pun intended, bad, bad pun intended, which with the sound turned down I don't usually hear, but there was one where this bank showed we could hand over our hard-earned by flashing a watch or a phone or whatever over some device with the slogan, putting you in charge of your money, or something like that. And I thought, well, not quite. It seems more like they're inventing new ways to take it off us putting us in charge of your money, as if they need new ways. Last comment on the tennis from the journo who said Bernard Tomic is the only person who can make Nick Kyrgios seem likeable. The current Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats and making us feel secure, Peter Duffer, pointed out the people of Melbourne were feeling very insecure thanks to big state supremo Dan, the pejorative Dan, who apparently was running riot at night, smashing, ransacking, stealing, terrifying, all his fault.
and proving what a mistake it had been to allow all these young black people into the country, practising his making us feel secure bit by suggesting all black youth should be put on a boat and sent back to where they came from, with the pejorative Dan and the out-of-control state socialists crewing the boat. To celebrate Invasion Day, we asked Pete whether all black youth meant the terra nullius non-people who weren't here when the first boat people arrived in 1788 should also be deported. Certainly. These people, like, you know, who don't respect our, you know, like, Great National Day, holding violent, you know, so-called, like, Invasion Day, like, you know, marches, should all be sent back to, you know, like, where they came from. Oh, well, we all know Pete is like, smart-like, and like Donald, not a racist bone-in. After all, he was a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land, oh, sorry, police person for many years, so there wouldn't be. Wonder if places like Kenya are trying to deport white youth gangs. While on great ministerial minds, poor old Barnacle, he's going to be a daddy again, very responsible at his age. And after his daughter ran around the electorate during the recent by-election in daddy's four-wheel drive with language warning here, listener, language warning, little children, please leave the room, with my father is a bastard on the sides. Bit of a clue that it wasn't all happy families at cars a barnacle, but surely there must be some section of the Child Protection Act that could protect the poor kid. Although in fairness to Barnacle, he pointed out the relationship is between a man and a woman, the way it should be. Following the tragic loss to parliamentary democracy of David Phoney, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten ambition has been delineating socialist policy for the Batman by-election, including raising doubts about the policy that may not be the policy to support the Adani, the climate, fry the planet CO2 mine. And little Billy, just when did you think the pro-CO2 policy you've supported so strongly uh, may need a bit of a rethink? I'd say roughly uh, two and a half seconds after David resigned. Uh, so a matter of principle. Absolutely, absolutely. A matter of Socialist Party principle. Down in Tassie, Principal also running riot in the eponymous Jackie Lumpen network, displaying a modesty right up there with that South Troubler was he, Nick Xenophony. Principal running after the number two on the ticket was declared eligible to replace her. Sadly, she was immediately forced to expel him after he selfishly decided that having been elected, he would, wait for it, wait for it, consider himself elected. A blatant abuse of the so-called democratic election process. Now, why did you throw him out, Jackie? Because he wouldn't give me the seat. How selfish and unprincipled can you get? For Christ's sake, what's the bloody party called? Uh, and what's the principle involved here, Jackie? The principle is, I'm Jackie Lumpen. And quite possibly the only member of the eponymous group. But what a pity she won't be in the Senate to discuss a bit of war and the fun, fun, fun of train killing with new caring business class Senator Jim Morlam, who just loves a bit of train killing and who threatened a bit of same on those who insulted him by suggesting his distribution of neo-fascist racist material made him a neo-fascist racist sympathiser. Wash your mouth out, critics. 
One of the expert exponents of train-killing, Zion, which so deplores aggression against anyone, was forced to accuse Syria of aggression after Syria shot down a very, very expensive Zion train-killer machine. Thankfully, it was probably donated to it by its very, very close friend, the US of, shot down. We deplore this aggression by the Syrian government against Zion when our train killer machine was doing nothing more than bombing the proverbial out of Syria. It's a bit, a bit rich, isn't it, for someone to shoot down your very, very expensive killer machine just because you keep killing them. Finally, big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull is celebrating the 10th anniversary of saying sorry by saying he is not sorry for ignoring decisions taken by the terrenulous non-people over what they believe will help them become non-non-people. Put simply, I know what's good for them. Malcolm showed true leadership. Good afternoon. It's great to have him back. That's Mr. Kevin Healy. And you can show your support for Mr. Kevin Healy by subscribing if you're not already one. Radio, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. You can stream radio Anywhere. straight into your car. Straight in. Like 3CR gets streamed straight into your car. Keeping you company, no matter where you're going or what you're doing, you'll have something interesting in your ear. That's correct. And you can Bluetooth it and you can just stick it right into you. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any kind of attachment you want? <laughs> to subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. yes. Waged? 75 And solidarity? 150 $150. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 3CR 94198377 and... Subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. When I'm on a road trip, I want to take 3CR with me and listen to Rock and Roll. Next, next, next to the second and final part of my interview with activist Hall Greenland. After taking part in the Freedom Rides in early 1965, he returned to teaching and then off to Europe. And that's where we pick up his story. Can I take you back to May 1968 in Paris? What was that like? Well, I mean, I was teaching at the time, so what I used to do was go across uh, at the weekends. You know, when I went, I went in mid-May, there were still clashes going on and the general strike had started as well. You know, to go to a city in which there are red flags everywhere and the waiters refer to you as comrade and the public transport, if it's running, is running without any fares and there's meeting and marches everywhere and red and black flags is a pretty astonishing place to be. And for you know, an Australian lad, as I was, I suppose, then the tear gas and the stun grenades used against demonstrators by the you know, semi-military police in Paris was you know, something you weren't used to and was a bit scary to start with, I tell you. Uh, until you get a bit more used to it. And, you know, you'd be, comrades would take you out to the big car factories in particular, uh, Peugeot and Renault car factories, which were not only on strike but being occupied by their workers. In the Sorbonne and on the left bank, you know, there were big big assemblies and big meetings uh, as well. And there were remarkable posters everywhere. The art students proved to be amongst the most radical students in Paris. They would produce silk screening 
remarkable, you know, revolutionary posters, which were, on, you know, on, seemed to be on every wall at every corner in Paris at the time. And there were, you know, lots of ferment, lots of political discussions going on all the time, lots of leaflets being produced and dished out and contest of ideas. Unfortunately, the occupations and the strikes remained passive. I was very much a supporter of a small group who were, you know, trying to encourage the students and the workers to take over uh, their places and actually begin to manage them, not just to occupy them or to close them down, but to show that another form of society, non-hierarchical and non-dominating, but, you know, run by the grassroots, was a real possibility. But that didn't happen except in a couple of places where the workers actually did continue to operate and continue to kind of show that you know, ordinary people could run the society as well, if not better, than their so-called betters. It must have been a bit tame to come back to Sydney after all that. Yeah, it was, although, you know, you, you feel more at home back in back in Sydney. And besides, my mother was dying. I, I had to come back, so I did come back. And um, uh, things were happening in Australia in the 1970s. Our 60s was probably a bit delayed compared to the United States and Europe. So, you know, we had the Whitlam government and, you know, the big period of reform and high hopes in the beginning of the environmental and women's movements here, as well as the continuing anti-war movement. And, you know, there were lots of talk about workers' control because the unions were very strong then and there was a lot more class consciousness amongst workers. So things were happening here as well, but, yeah, they were tamer than... Um, the, the big days in Europe. Did you stay teaching or did you branch out to something different? Uh, no, I, I, I stayed teaching for a couple of years and then I got involved in radical journalism at the Digger uh, magazine. Um, started up in you know, 1972 and lasted three or four years, same time as the, as the Whitlam government. And it came out every fortnight and, you know, gave, a, gave an alternative you know, view about what was going on. And what was your view of what was going on under Whitlam? Well, under Whitlam there was a lot of, I mean, there's no doubt about it, the Whitlam government responded quite positively to many of the concerns. You know, they, they did have a minister for the environment. Whitlam had a special woman's advisor. You know, they dropped the tax on the, on the pill. You know, they supported the equal, equal pay case of the ACTU in the, in the arbitration court at the time. Fair Work Commission of the time, and they generally supported workers' demands for better, better wages and shorter hours. So, you know, it was a government that, believe it or not, uh, it's very hard to believe these days, was a, a, a reformist government that believed in reforms. It was a radical social democratic government that responded positively to what was happening in our society. The stand of the Whitlam government on East Timor must have disappointed many of your comrades. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that is, that is the huge blot on the record of the, of the Whitlam government. Mind you, by 1975, there were signs that they were trying to put the brakes on, certainly on the, on the union movement. They appointed Bill Hayden as the treasurer and Diamond Jim McClellan as the minister for labour to take the place of Jim Cairns and Clyde Cameron. They were much more right-wing Labor figures who understood the need to mollify the boss and to rein in the workers and, uh, and the welfare state. But compared to East Timor, of course, that was they were minor crimes. East Timor and their connivance with the Indonesians was appalling. But of course, you know, the 
pro-American, pro-imperialist uh, attitudes of Whitlam, you know, were camouflaged during most of his time in power by his expansion of the welfare state and other reforms that he brought that he brought in. For foreign affairs, he was a very different kettle of fish to his domestic kind of positions. You mentioned earlier Nick Oroglass, someone that you met early years at Sydney University. You, many years later, wrote his biography. Yeah, Nick Oroglass was a was an inspiring figure, a working class hero, if you like. He was a union leader in the shipyards of Balmain well into the 50s and then he went to council and became a pioneer of environmental issues and also of um, grassroots democracy of you know public participation open councils and so on for his efforts he was expelled from the labor party in 1968 for siding for the, with the community uh, on an environmental issue against the council caucus and, and the state and the state you know labor party and then he became mayor of Leichhardt in the early 1970s and introduced a lot of public participation and openness and so on, which is still you know, unrivaled or unmatched anywhere in Australia. He was somebody who not only um, talked the talk but walked the walk and was a hero both to the uh, old working class where he was, you know, he's, he was a champion of the workers in the shipyards, but also of what we might call the new, you know, intellectually trained working class who were, you know, colonising... Balmain in the 1960s and early 1970s, so he straddled both parts of the working class, if you like, the new and the old. So he was quite an inspirational figure, Nick. He was, you know, he could be difficult at times to work with. He was quite, you know, quite definite in his views and often uh, inflexible, but that's because he was pretty principled and pretty sure that he was right, which nine times out of ten he was. But anyhow, um, he was, you know, he was a Huge influence and you know, one of the one of the one of the unacknowledged greats of Australian history, I think. Now, at one stage in your writing or your journalism career, you did win a Walkley. Yeah, well, I won a Walkley for ed- for category for uh, editing, not for my actually writing. I I was employed at the at the Bulletin as a sub editor and occasional feature writer. And while I, I think I was a finalist once for my journalism. But I didn't win that year either. One of three, but it wasn't the one, one they picked. But no, no, it was for it was for sub editing that I actually got the um, got the two awards. Now I want to know how you progressed from radical left politics to being a Greens candidate. Because of Nick Origlass, from the late 60s onwards, I was you know very conscious of environmental issues, and one of our comrades, one of Nick's comrades and my comrades was a bloke called Alan Roberts, who was probably Australia's first serious uh, ecologist, social ecologist in particular, um, who saw you know the environmental crisis stemming from the socio-economic system that we have, if you or if you like, from capitalism, uh, especially consumer capitalism. And those two people kept me, you know, fully aware of what was going on environmentally. And so when we were expelled from the Labor Party in the inner city, about 20 of us, in 1984, it was seemed quite natural um, to form the Greens because another mate of mine was Tony Harris, who was also in the Labor Party at the time and expelled at the same time. He'd been following very closely what was happening in Germany with the formation of the German Greens. 
and he'd formed a small reading group in the inner city Labor Party called the Labor Greens. And so we were reading a lot, a lot of overseas green material, both ecological and political. So when we were expelled from the Labor Party, at the time Labor was embracing uranium mining, which we'd been, we, which we'd been struggling against, a logical thing to do, inspired by Tony and by the German Greens, was, given we were all politicals and we wanted to keep active, was to form the Greens. So in late uh, 1984-84 we formed the Greens and, you know, registered, the, registered as, a, as a political party, uh, which you had to do at that time. The other thing about the Greens, the Greens are based on the four principles, which is not just uh, ecological sustainability, but grassroots democracy, social justice and peace and non-violence. Well, all those things were the kind of things that we'd been championing and guiding our politics for you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And so it seemed quite natural for us to form the Greens because we agreed with the, you know, the four pillars, the four founding principles of the, of the German Greens. So we adopted them and adopted a grassroots horizontal structure for the Greens and, and set sail. That was the genesis of, of the Greens certainly in New South Wales and, you know, lots of what we did early on still survives in one form or another, thank God, in the Greens generally. What about in later years with the Greens? By the early 90s, we uh, managed to convince Bob Brown and the Tasmanians and their allies to join with us as well to make the Australian Greens. You know, there were long negotiations in 91-92 and the Australian Greens were formed and the Tasmanian uh, Independence or the United Tasmanian Group, whatever they were called at the time, took the name Tasmanian Greens, which we in New South Wales are only too willing to share with whoever supported the four, the four pillars and the, and the whole idea of a you know, horizontal grassroots structure. But there is no doubt about it, Bob Brown and Tasmanian Greens, excellent people with a terrific record on environmental campaigning, had very different ideas about the kind of party they wanted. They wanted a much more centralised, top-down national party rather than a horizontal, locally or regionally based grassroots party. So that was a real tension right from the beginning. The other thing was, there's no doubt about it, the people in New South Wales in the Greens were much more radical politically and came from a, a variety of anarchist, Trotskyist, feminist, direct action socialist, leftist backgrounds than those, say, from Tasmania, who are you know, much more respectable, if you like, in their political origins. So there were tensions on those two areas about out-of-centralisation and top-down kind of organisation versus grassroots and participatory kind of democracy, and the whole question about how radical politically the Greens should be, and especially on the question of capitalism and transformation to a different society. And those tensions have persisted and they're still there in the Greens. It's, it seems to me healthy that they still remain because overseas battle is over and in many, too many Greens parties, the centralisers, the rather conformist conventional Greens have, have triumphed, especially in countries like Germany and France and uh, elsewhere in Europe. Although it's not true in England and it's not true in the United States, the Greens are still very much like the Greens in Australia or the Greens in New South Wales in particular. 
So that's a tension, and it's a tension that's still there. And, you know, as you know, it breaks out into the mainstream media from time to time when cases like Bob Brown publicly castigating Lee Rann, and that's basically because Lee is, a, you know, somebody who puts the members first and who is, you know, a bit more principled and radical politically than uh, the other Greens MPs in Canberra. Just finally, Hall, what will keep you on and off the streets in 2018? On the streets, obviously, the Adani. I mean, that the victory in Adani has to be completed yet, but, but I remain quite confident about that. Indigenous issues will, you know, will be something that, you know, I went to the huge... Uh, Sydney demo, it wasn't as huge as the one in Melbourne uh, against the date and against the invasion day being uh, called Australia Day so that'll kick. Uh, overseas I'm interested in, you know and uh, with the Kurdish struggle, they're trying to form some kind of feminist, egalitarian participatory democracy in northern Syria and they're now encountering you know, the fascist Turkish state who are invading there and I suppose also uh, there'll be local issues that I'll be involved in, trying to get some kind of public participation and democracy back into our planning system, and like you know, lots of other people who have been or have been in the workforce or are in the workforce, trying to bloody do something about the appalling anti-worker, anti-union, you know, industrial relations laws that we're confronted with. So there's plenty still going on, and of course, like everybody else, I'm following and involved in, you know, the Me Too, the whole kind of feminist conversation that's going on about the patriarchy and the way that, you know, it presumes to to do what it likes with women. A very busy life for activist Hall Greenland, who's in, in Sydney, and always been in Sydney, except when he's overseas. I met him at... Um, the commemoration for Dr Alan Roberts a couple of weeks ago. It's 4.28 on 3CR. The question which should be answered by the corporate media here in Australia and in other Western countries is why do they continue to call the conflict in Syria a civil war when so many foreign troops and war machines are operating in and above that country? Today, with academic and activist Tim Anderson, we'll look at these foreign fighters and their role in the seven-year conflict. First, Tim, the US. Well, that's a good place to start. The root of the problem in Syria has always been that the US is involved in its sixth war, attempts to overthrow the government there um, after Afghanistan, after Iraq, after Libya, after the invasion of South Lebanon and the war in Yemen, um, it's an attempt by the US to overthrow the Syrian government and to remove an independent player in that region, basically. Syria and Iran are the two remaining independent players in that region, and the US, with its backers, with its allies um, in the region, are trying to do a clean sweep and basically, through a series of bloody wars, take over the entire region strategically. They, of course, they managed to invade Afghanistan. They managed to destroy the state in Iraq. They managed to destroy the state in Libya. Israel failed with its invasion of South Lebanon 12 years ago. But in Syria, they've met serious resistance. And so there's been a huge propaganda war to try and justify their, their existence there. Now, it's true what you say that a number of their 
regional allies have shifted ground in recent times. So when you talk about the role of Qatar and Saudi and Turkey there's, and, and Israel, there's a number of differences. Um, but that's basically the, the story in a nutshell. The U.S. is has this big game plan of regime change once again, and it's failed. And in the fallout of its failure, you've got these reactions from different sides. All right, we'll move on to Israel. Israel's very upset that ISIS Daesh has been destroyed, effectively, that there's been a very strong coalition in support of Syria, of course, principally from Hezbollah, from Iran, from Russia, but also from Iraq, an emerging Iraq, which has a little bit of uh, glimmers of independent um, political will these days. So Israel, in that context, for a long time it's been supporting armed groups in the south of Syria and making its own occasional attacks on military sites in Syria. But, of course, they have had lost two planes in recent times. There was a F-35 late last year that was put out of action. Basically, they claimed it was a bird strike, but the Syrians hit it. And now, recently, this F-16, the state-of-the-art technology, has been downed in what they claim was an attack on an Iranian drone. But in any case, symbolically, that was a very an important bloody nose for Israel, which felt it was um, invincible you know, in the region. And now it's finding that um, the Syrian patience has run out and they're, uh, they're prepared to defend themselves and they're able to defend themselves. But Israel has always been worried about the well, the survival of an independent Syria and the engagement of Syria in a very strong alliance, which is basically against an apartheid state in, in Palestine. And th- those important powers have been Iran, Syria and Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. They're the ones that have provided the armed resistance in Palestine with the means to keep up that struggle. Lots of other people talk about supporting Palestine, but when it comes to actually supporting the armed resistance, which is something a lot of Western people want to shy away from and talk about passive resistance and so on. But it's been Iran, Syria and Hezbollah that have been at, at the lead of helping the, the Palestinian resistance. And, and so Israel fears the war being resolved in Syria in a way that will lead to that powerful alliance on what they regard as their borders. Well, in the first instance here, we've got to look at the fact that Israel has been trying to create this buffer zone within Syria. It's got its own Free Syrian Army Brigade that it supports, and it's trying to push the boundaries of what has already occupied Syria further into South Syria. I should remind your listeners that Israel has occupied a large part of South Syria, the occupied Golan Heights, uh, for 50 years since the 1967 war. Uh, Syria unsuccessfully tried to get it back in the October War of 1973, but there's a very large slice of Syria, which international law is very clear that it's an illegal occupation, the occupied Golan, but Israel's been trying to push that boundary because it's, that's the first vulnerable area that Israel has when it comes to Syria re-establishing itself as a stable state that's defended itself against these, uh, this very long, very long war. So the, the reclaiming of the occupied Golan is, is a sensitive point at the end of when this war in Syria ends. What about Qatar? Well, Qatar's in a funny situation, isn't it? Because Qatar was, from the very beginning, supporting the armed Muslim Brotherhood groups, which were in alliance with the al-Qaeda groups, including al-Nusra and ISIS. And they worked together in a sort of a way with Saudi Arabia and then Turkey for many years, 
But in the background, there's always been this jealousy between the Muslim Brotherhood, which Qatari monarchy supports, and the independent Salafi groups, internationalized Salafi groups called Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, ISIS, and so on. The Saudis have never really trusted the Muslim Brotherhood because they see it as competition, even though ideologically they're very similar, and most of the time they work together, there's been that competitive nature because the Muslim Brotherhood is a genuinely wider sectarian group in the region, whereas the Saudis like to be able to control a group like ISIS and, um, and al-Nusra, for example, more directly. The Saudis, for example, didn't support the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt. They could get on very well with Mubarak. They were more practical about it. The split between Saudi Arabia and Qatar about a year ago was really the move by this new crown prince in Saudi Arabia who was trying to discipline the activities of the Muslim Brotherhood in Qatar. In particular, some of the Muslim Brotherhood sheikhs who were critical of the Saudis through Al Jazeera, and Al Jazeera had been a fairly successful media venture by the, by the Muslim Brotherhood based in Qatar. The Saudis simply carried a, a very rash act. They tried to discipline the Qataris very strongly, their own partners in, in terrorism against the region, against Iraq and Syria. It backfired on them, really. What they did was they split their little alliance and they drove Qatar into the arms of Iran because the Saudis tried to block all airspace and so on in the, in the Persian Gulf. Iran, which is, of course, a target of the sectarian ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood, that is to say Shia, are considered, Shia Muslims are considered Kufa apostate Muslims, not real Muslims, the main enemy by the Muslim Brotherhood and by Al-Qaeda. But nevertheless, Iran was sophisticated enough. Its diplomacy was quite well developed that they were ready to take, uh, to give refuge basically to Qatar to prevent it being destroyed by the Saudi Arabia, by the bigger Gulf partner. Similarly, Turkey, which also the, Mr. Erdogan in, in Ankara had his own uh, ambitions of leading a Muslim Brotherhood alliance in the region and had got on quite well with the Al-Qaeda groups and still supports most of the Al-Qaeda groups in northern Syria. But Turkey came to the rescue of Qatar too. There's a U.S. base in, in Qatar as well, you know. So basically, the rashness of the Saudi leadership led to that split with Qatar, and it, it complicated things on the ground, because what you have now is that the jihadist groups in Syria, for example, like Arar al-Sham, they were getting money from Qatar, and they were still linked into this Muslim Brotherhood network. They were uh, had a more Syrian base, that is to say, they were using more Syrian Salafis to run these jihadist groups. So they, basically the split between Qatar and Saudi Arabia intensified the rivalry for money and weapons and so on between some of those Muslim Brotherhood-aligned jihadist groups and the Al-Qaeda internationalized groups. They've been killing each other in Idlib, for example. That's been aggravated by this split between the Saudis and Qatar. Looking at Turkey, their increasing repression of the Kurds inside Turkey, is their aim on the border of um, Syria to get the Kurds there, or is it more than that? It's because the, the principal conflict with the Kurds is between the government of Turkey and the, the largest population of Kurds in the region, which is by a long way, which is in Turkey. In, in many respects, in Syria, for example, the separatist movement in, in Syria is largely driven by the Turkish leadership and the Turkish ambition, sorry, Turkish-Kurdish ambition. So you, you see, for example, 
in some of the prominent photos um, in Raqqa and some other parts of northern Syria, you see pictures of Ocalan, the imprisoned Turkish-Kurdish leader. Um, and a lot of the people that have joined, the, a lot of the Kurds that have joined the US-backed groups in northern Syria now are indeed from Turkey. To some extent, uh, a lot of refugees from Turkey too, from the war that's been going on there for three decades between the Turkish government and, and Kurdish separatists there. So the recent thing, though, probably what you're talking about is the Turkish invasion of northern Syria um, in the northern part of Aleppo in a place called Afrin. While the Syrian army is engaged with the jihadist groups in Idlib, uh, the, the last refuge, basically, of the jihadist groups in Syria, for the last major refuge, remember, they effectively internally deported a lot of those groups under ceasefire and reconciliation, Mosalaha agreements, to Idlib to try and contain the jihadist groups up there. Now there, the Syrian army is moving in from the south on those groups. At the same time, slightly to the eastern side, in the far north part of Aleppo countryside, which is a type of a pocket that's surrounded by present-day Turkey, basically. The, the Turkish army has moved in on the city of Afrin, and that's a city that's been effectively held by Kurdish militants for some time now. The, basically, the Kurd, some of the Kurdish militants there have, have declared no-go zones for the, for the Syrian army. And the Syrian army has more or less left it, or the Syrian government has left this issue. That is to say, there hasn't been major clashes between those Kurdish groups and the Syrian army up until now. But because the US has moved in and, for example, with some of those groups, it's transformed them into broader groups, even with a minority of Kurds, even when you take into account the Turkish Kurds. The US-backed groups have, have been declared traitors by the Syrians and there's the beginnings of some sort of conflict going on there. The people in Afrin apparently have called on the Syrian army and the Syrian air force to confront the Turkish army that's invading their part of Syria. But the Syrians have said, well, you have to then agree that you want to be part of Syria and not pursue this separatist dream, basically, and we're not going to defend you with our blood if you want to then carve out a part of our country. And so there's that, been that sort of standoff. There's that contradiction also within Afrin, for example, that the civilians want protection, they want the Syrian army there, but Turkish-led armed groups there don't want the Syrian army to come in, so there's that type of standoff going on. This Turkish invasion, and it is to, from the Turkish side, it is to, in their view, get rid of enclaves of armed Turkish separatists in the north of Syria, which would pose a threat to Turkey as they see it. That's the, the rationale the Turkish have, and there's something to it. It's got to be said, basically. But you notice that the US has really pulled back and washed its hands from it, as it did in Iraq. You might recall late last year, the Iraqi federal police and their army went through Kirkuk and drove the, the separatist Kurds out of Kirkuk in about an hour and a half. And there was a huge collapse in the separatist movement in Iraq as a result of that. And the US did nothing about it. The US, which had in, in many respects nominally supported and helped separatist Kurds in northern Iraq for the purpose of weakening Iraq, did not ever explicitly support an independent Kurdistan in Iraq. And it's the same thing in Syria. The US is using the Kurds opportunistically to divide and weaken Iraq and Syria, but they've never supported the concept of an independent Kurdistan in the region. So that's the, the situation that Kurdish groups are left with now, that no one has come into their help now that uh, Erdogan is attacking Afrin, 
that the, the, the Kurdish leadership themselves, if not the people, have refused to allow the idea of the Syrian army coming into their, what they consider a part of their independent Kurdistan. And the US has never been committed to supporting them in any case. And yet the Kurdish people still have that dream of the Kurdish state. Some of them do, and many of them have accepted the idea of being part of a, a pluralist state, as in Syria and Iran, for example. There's a smaller group in Iran. In Syria, they're a smaller group. In Iraq, there's at least three major groups which have some important differences. Most attention is given to the Barzani group in Erbil there. But in Syria, there's a lot of divisions too. But what you have is a separatist leadership which is really dominated from the Turkish side. And they're the ones that are creating this contradiction now between the local people. You have to remember also that in the northern Syria, with the help of the US, the damage has been pretty serious. There's been serious ethnic cleansing for some years now in certain parts of northern Syria. That is to say, ethnic cleansing by Kurds of non-Kurds, for example, in Kamishli. You know, for example, about a year ago here in Sydney, we got 500 families from Kamishli. They were almost all Christian, Assyrian Christian from Kamishli. There has been a practice on the ground. It's been documented that the leadership of those separatist factions have been demanding to the non-Kurdish populations in the north of Syria because the Kurds never dominated in population terms the, the north of Syria. They were a very large minority in the, in the north. Uh, let's say I'm talking now about the north east of Syria. There's a lot of Arab population and other peoples, Assyrians there. The Australian government, for example, when they did their Syrian refugee program, I think it was early last year, what's happened as a result is about 80% of those refugees here have been Christians. They've been, the Australians have been selecting the Christians. That's all so happened to coincide with a plan by some of the Kurdish separatist leaders to eliminate non-Kurdish populations in those areas and take over their towns. I mean, there's a longer history to this too. And the Assyrians, if you listen to the, I'm talking about Assyrians, A-S-Y-R-I-N, the Assyrians who are mostly Christian, they have a long history of this problem in Iraq also with uh, Kurdish people coming in and taking over their lands to pursue their own political ambitions. You're listening to activist and academic Tim Manison with an analysis of the conflict in Syria. How much influence has Iran in Syria today? Iran has a lot of influence, but it's been principled about the way that it, it exercises that, basically, there in Syria, as they are in Iraq, to help the independent governments there because Iran has a very strong commitment to the principle of independent countries and anti-imperialism effectively. They use slightly different names for it. They talk about excluding the arrogant powers in support of the Mustadafin, the, the downtrodden people. But really they've been a good neighbour in many respects because they're not trying to undermine the authority of the Iraqi or the, or the Syrian governments there. Of course this is exaggerated and by the Israel and by the US and by their clients, basically by the proxy armies that talk about you know, the Iranians, partly because of that sectarian ideology from the Muslim Brotherhood that this is a Shia state, you know, which is a, a kufr apostate Muslims, you know, the, the worst enemy, basically worse than anyone else. Indeed, for example, some of the jihadist groups these days are cheering Israeli attacks on Syria in the last few days, for example. They haven't been ashamed to go to Israel and ask for help against the Syrian government because they regard an external enemy like a, an ethnic cleansing Jewish state as less 
of a challenge to them at the moment than their own internal enemies, that is to say a, a pluralist state or an apostate Muslim state as they regard Syria, for example. Syria remains the most pluralist state in the region. And what about Russia? So Russia's played an extraordinary role, even though it's not really part of the region, but Russia, in terms of the way that the President Putin has sold it to the Russian people, uh, he has much more support, for example, for justifying the Russian presence in Syria to defend Syria. Remember, Russia came in, mu in a much more direct way four years into this war. The they hadn't directly helped Syria. They had through arms and so on, but they hadn't directly been involved in the conflict till four years, till September 2015. But the way that that's been justified to the Russian people is that this is a defence of Russia from jihadists that have been encouraged by the same characters, by the Saudis, for example, in the Caucasus, remember that very long war, two lots of wars they had in Chechnya, in the Caucasus. In the last two years, for example, they've also been saying, look, a lot of the people in Jabhat al-Nusra and the al-Qaeda groups in northern Syria are indeed from Chechnya and some of the other parts of the southern republics of the Russian Federation. Last time I saw a poll, about three-quarters of the Russian people supported that rationale for Russia being in Syria, and only about half of the Russian people supported the rationale of Russia being in Syria just to help Syria. So the, the Russian government has, has quite astutely tied their presence there in, in line with domestic needs and also to distinguish it from, for example, and this would be in, uppermost in Russians' minds, how is this different to the, the Soviet uh, presence in Afghanistan for many years, which was a, a big aggravating sore in, in that case. So President Putin made it very clear to try and distinguish the current operation, which has, been, which has effectively turned the tide, not just Russia, but Russia with Iran, because Iran's coordination on the ground has been critical, and most of the major advances in Syria in the last two years have been on the ground by ground troops. That is to say, the air power has helped a lot, but it's, you can't really make advances in a war like this, which is urban war, a lot of which is guerrilla terrorist war, you can't make advances except but on the ground. So Iran has been important in coordinating and, what do you say, supplementing that with other forces from around the region. They have recruited people from other countries to help the Syrian forces. Well, with all these countries involved in Syria in one way or another, we shouldn't lose sight of the impact on the Syrian people themselves. Of course. But we do. I mean, the media here is very obsessed with its own focus you know once upon a time they're obsessed with Aleppo once the Syrian army took back Aleppo what have you heard about Aleppo since then they, they ignore it now their focus seems to be e-scooter or Idlib save Idlib save e-scooter then they've never the western media has never been concerned about ordinary Syrian people there's an article a day or so ago uh, about supposedly the, the civilian tragedy in e-scooter claiming there's 400,000 people in e-scooter now I was in the e-scooter a few months ago in the government controlled side, in the, in the Syrian army controlled side, and I was able to see what was going on there on both sides. If you'd followed the Syrian news, you'd know that there would be civilians killed almost every day, not every day, but maybe two or three times a week in the eastern part of the old city of Damascus because of the shelling coming from Joba, which is a destroyed part of the Iskuta closest to the old city. And that's reported on almost every day in the Iranian, the Syrian, the Russian media, but not reported here. So what we have in the ABC is a story from one of the ABC journalists who's based in Jerusalem, Sophie McNeil, who claims that this is a hell on earth and it's all by way of saying that 
sorry, the e-scooter is the hell on earth and the picture of a child, a bleeding child there to show that there's a terrible humanitarian situation there. There are serious problems in the e-scooter, the parts of the e-scooter that are occupied by the al-Qaeda groups. They've, they've occupied it for six years now. But there's complete lack of context to what's going on there in those reports. The, the stories come from jihadist sources like the, the man in England, in Coventry, England, and it's as though it's perpetuating this myth that the Syrian army is attacking civilians. For some unexplained reason, the Syrian army is just fighting and killing Syrian civilians. It's an absurd story if you've thought about it for more than five seconds. But that's what passes in our media. And it's an attempt to say this: we are concerned with civilians. They're not at all. They don't say a word about the people that are killed in Bab Tuma, in Bab Sharki, the, the bus stop outside Bab Tuma, which I've walked through a number of times. That's where they've killed the most people from shelling from Joba. I haven't seen any story in the ABC about the civilians killed at the bus stop outside Bab Tuma. It's mainly a Christian area, but they don't report about it at all. They do it in a very selective way, reporting the people in Syria to try and give some sort of moral high ground to the war that's being waged against Syria. So it, it's appalling, really, and people do it in the name of being concerned of the civilians. But if they were, they would actually look uh, at a much more balanced picture of what's going on. There was a hope at the end of last year that this war might end. In fact, strategically, the war is, has, uh, is, what is over in many respects. You know, the, the sad thing is that people still, are still killed and the fighting still goes on. The biggest challenge really is Idlib at the moment and Israel in the south also. And it may be that this war ends with a new conflict emerging with Israel if the leadership of Israel continues to be as rash as it is. Um, I believe they're making some fundamental mistakes in Israel, but the balance of power is certainly going to be different at the end of the war. I mean, it's a sad thing about every war. I recall the Vietnam War that the Vietnam War was over in a strategic sense, in the sense that we all knew that the US had failed in Vietnam by 1968 when the Paris peace talks were going on. But due to internal politics in the US at that time, the war carried on for another seven years. And of course more people were killed in that seven years than in, in the previous part of it. But everyone knew that um, the US venture was, was failing at that time. It's the same sort of situation now. The U.S. is a very bad loser. They don't know how to lose. They've pretended this is a civil war. For God's sake, we've been talking about all of the international implications of this seven-year-long war. It's the most internationalized war in living memory, really. But the Australian media still calls it a civil war. Uh, and they deny that the Australian forces themselves have been involved in massacres. I myself documented an important massacre in Derry Zur in late 2016. I published it late last year. I did a lot of investigation. I went to the site. I spoke to people there. I looked at the reports the US had done about it. It's very clear the Australians were directly involved in the massacre of Syrian soldiers to give advantage to ISIS in Deir Zur. That effort failed, but they claimed it was a mistake. Was there an interest in Australian journalists to follow this up and look at this? Here was some evidence. An Australian had gone there and got this evidence, put it together. There wasn't any, any interest in it, really. Unfortunately, that's how these conflicts go on, that they're extended, they're perpetuated. The problem is now trying to resolve this war. The, the Russians had a reasonable conference just recently with some 1,500 representatives of opposition people in Sochi. There was a good basis for a constitutional commission to be created there, 
and what happens? Um, Israel attacks, the US attacks Syrian forces claiming self-defense within the self-defense of US forces within the territory of Syria. And these absurd pretexts you see now that the US says we're not really in Syria or Iraq to defeat ISIS now. ISIS is effectively defeated, but we're there for some other reason because, you know, so they keep shifting their ground and they keep perpetuating, extending this war. Connection between what's happening in Syria and the conflict in Yemen? Yes, of course, because Yemen is the one genuine revolution that came out of this post-Arab Spring period and the Saudis have been involved in a terrible campaign to crush it, um, not just militarily because they're not really advancing at all militarily, but by a a sea and air blockade. A number of us have tried to visit Yemen. It's almost impossible to visit Yemen through any secure transport now because the Saudis control it. There's been a block on payments within the, the Yemeni bank for import of food. There's a cholera outbreak. It's a terrible secret war going on in Yemen. And it's part of the overall plan that the US, through its proxies, like the Saudi, the, the awful, ugly, most vicious terrorist-promoting state in the region, Saudi Arabia, using those people to try and divide and take over the entire region. So Yemen, an independent Yemen is something that the US and the Saudis find intolerable, even though the US itself in its national forums and the Europeans from time to time, they can't defend the war on Yemen, but they continue selling weapons to the Saudis. And of course, the Saudis have been the principal source of weapons for all of those uh, jihadist groups in the region. Finally, Tim, would you like to comment on the position of Jim Mullen as a senator in the Australian Parliament? I don't know if your listeners know, but Jim Mullen was a general or a colonel and, and then a general in the Australian Army. He was the one Australian commander who actually led one of the huge massacres in Iraq uh, against the people of Fallujah. There was two incursions into Iraq, into Fallujah in 2004, really pretty much along the lines of a scorched-earth policy. By the way, the Syrian army has never done that sort of scorched-earth attack on a city in the way that it was carried out in Fallujah with the use of white phosphorus in cities, which is banned under international law. I wrote with Chris Doran an article on this on the basis for war crimes prosecutions against Australian leaderships in the Iraq war, and Molan's role in Fallujah was an important part of that. Now, apparently, he's got himself elected as a Conservative senator to the Australian Parliament, as you say, and he's attracting more attention by being involved in racist posts or posting racist video, apparently. It's really a sign of the, the little reflection we have over our role in the world that there isn't a greater debate about the role of Molan in the Iraq war. I mean, people are trying to sweep the Iraq war under the carpet, Syria is a case in point. Really, this chemical weapons scandal that's been pursued against Syria for years now, it's another WMD rationale for military intervention. We went through that all with Iraq, but when it comes to Libya, apparently that was all forgotten. When it comes to Syria, that was all forgotten. And these WMD pretexts were used again and again in Syria as they had been used for the intervention in Iraq. Now we see recently the U.S. Defense Secretary Mattis has admitted that he hasn't got any evidence himself that the Syrian government had ever used sarin gas. But he's suspicious and other people have said it and blah, 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 the, the pretext, the false pretext go on. You recall that with Iraq, with the, the pretext that 
Saddam Hussein was going to would, would be able to attack Britain at in 45 minutes' notice, and he was developing nuclear weapons and chemical and biological. When the invasion of Iraq happened, the, defense, the then Defence Secretary of the US, Donald Rumsfeld, said, "Well, it seems like there weren't any WMDs," and they laugh about it. They don't really care, you know. After they destroyed Iraq, the Iraqi state, they reduced the Iraqi state to very little. Um, they destroyed all of the social services, the infrastructure that was supporting the, the Iraqi people. They're trying to do the same with Syria. But our culture, our public debate doesn't seem to make the links to connect the dots. Each war is considered with a new set of lies of a similar character. But really, the level of public debate is... Well, you, you see, when I visit Syria or when I try and say something, the Murdoch media, for example, will come and do a personal attack on me to try and just simply bury the idea that you can have any sort of different view to the new pretext for a new war. That's what's sad about this absence of public debate in our country. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that is academic and activist Dr Tim Anderson speaking about Iraq and other things about the Middle East. And they're the sort of reasons why people subscribe to 3CR because they're the information that you're not going to get on the mainstream media. But these listener sponsors who keep the radio station going, when you become a listener sponsor, you get a part of this radio station. You get a little part of it. It's yours. You get a little share of it. It's 3CR Subscriber Drive and we're asking you to show your love for 3CR. Support your favourite show by calling us on 9419 8377 or online 3cr.org.au unwaged, slash wedged, $35 unwaged, $70 wedged People lining up uh, out in the street, uh, out in Smith Street in Collingwood, lining up to take out their list of sponsorship. There are many challenges still for the people of Timor-Leste as they develop their independent country, and there are many individuals and non-government organisations working with them to achieve their aims. One of them is a feeder from Australia who have six partners there, one being the Working Women's Centre of Timor-Leste. And to talk about the work of the centre and the women whom they assist and support, I spoke with Sam Bond, who's the AFIDA organiser for Timor-Leste and Indonesia. And my first question to Sam was, when and where was the Working Women's Centre established? So the centre was set up in Dili in 2008 and it was set up as a result of Elizabeth from AFIDA working in Timor-Leste coming to Australia to do some training with the Australian Union Movement in the Anna Stewart program and at that stage uh, she was invited to participate in the Anna Stewart training in South Australia. And so part of her time that she spent down there in the training she spent with the Working Women's Centre of South Australia decided at that stage in discussion with the centre there that this might be a good model to replicate in Timor-Leste. And then the following year there was an industrial women's conference, an industrial relations conference held in Darwin and Elizabeth came over and met with the women from the Working Women's Centre in the Northern Territory as well 
and they decided that that's what they were going to set up. So they went back to Timor and with some seed funding from the Working Women's Centres and through a feeder, they established their own centre. And their focus from the start was on domestic workers because they were an unrecognised workforce in Timor, but one that was growing quite rapidly, particularly in the main city of Dili. Why? Because there was a change, I suppose, in the range of income levels, I suppose, of the families in Dili as the city started to evolve a little bit more and there was capacity for families to be able to employ workers and the use of domestic workers had probably been a long-standing experience of expats who were living there in the reconstruction of Timor and that was starting to grow amongst um, the more wealthy or more affluent Timorese families as well. So there was an increase in workers coming to Dili from often poor rural areas looking for work. I'd imagine it wouldn't be acceptable in some instances for women to actually go out and work in other people's homes. I don't think that's been a major issue in um, in East Timor. I think that the capacity to be able to earn any sort of income has been the highest agenda. We're talking about a country which has 85% of its population still living in sort of farm rural areas where the capacity to earn actual cash money is very limited if they're working on the farms. And so the sense that going to the cities to earn an income for those who don't have access to education or particularly tertiary education, where it's seen as a pathway to getting paid work, the options would be to, for men to go and work in sort of areas like construction or other sort of what would be deemed as low-skilled jobs. And for women, there were very few options, but um, working in people's homes was one of them. So if the women left the rural areas, does that mean that they're living in the house? where they're working or they've got somewhere else? Mostly they are living in the houses and this is what's come out from the research that's been undertaken by the Working Women's Centre. There are a percentage of them who are living out of the homes but the majority when they're employed are employed to, with living um, arrangements and that's part of what they've been breaking down in the quantitative and qualitative research that they've been doing by surveying the workers is how that impacts on how much they're able to earn and whether the employers are taking out living expenses from the wages that they're earning. And what have they found? They found that they were, that, that um, and in some areas, disproportionate amounts of money. And so part of what the Working Women's Centre have been pushing for is to not reduce the regular income of the workers because of their living expenses or not to an unreasonable level. This all comes back to lack of education because often the women, and often they're very young, will come from rural areas where they've had no rules around labour that they've, they've ever been exposed to because they're coming from the farm or they're coming from the villages. And they basically, were accepting the conditions that were presented to them because it meant that there was an income at the end and didn't have an understanding of the fact that the wages that were being cut by probably an inappropriate amount. So part of the push is to recognise that there is an hourly rate, that there should be an hourly rate, that they should also be entitled to overtime and that um, there should not be excessive amounts of those wages being taken out for when the work is meant to be living. I'd imagine that the conditions would vary with the different houses that the women worked in. Absolutely, and that's part of it being an unregulated workforce is that they're completely, without the Working Women's Centre and without the kind of opening up of an understanding of them having rights as workers, 
for many of those workers. Unless they were able to speak to other domestic workers in other home environments, they wouldn't know whether their conditions were better or worse than the next person because mostly they're, they're stuck inside the house doing the work and don't have much of a network of communication with other people. So that's been a big part of the role of the Working Women's Centre too is to connect these women to each other so that they can have conversations even in, even in the street that they're living in with other workers who are in similar situations. Okay, well let's talk about the, the Working Women's Centre. What actually is it? situated in the heart of Dili and it's uh, moved offices a couple of times but now they currently share the office with the Afida staff so our Afida office in Dili has a full-time person Elizabeth Aduro who has been working there with us for 16 years and the Working Women's Centre share a building with them now and so they have a staff of about four with two full-time people and uh, an Australian volunteer, so an AVI volunteer who's currently working with them and another part-time worker. They have a board of management which is made up of a combination of sort of leader, women leaders um, in the community. One of the trade union leaders is also on their board from the General Workers Union and also some domestic workers themselves. And so the board make the decisions about... Um, how the money is spent and um, and that's money that flows through from various donation sources from Australia through AFIDA and um, each year they put together a plan about what they're, what they're going to do in that year and that gets approved and then they allocate the funds accordingly. Occasionally they get funds from other sources so they're on the lookout for various grants that support their values and their vision and that's how they managed to do a sort of larger amount of their research last year. They got some funds from the New Zealand Embassy in Timor to research the conditions of the of the women not just in Dili, the domestic workers in, in the other sort of two major cities of East Timor which is Swai and Okusi. I'm just wondering how difficult or easy it was to do or it is to do that research because I'd imagine that um, there'd be a bit of resistance from the employer. It is very difficult when you think about the actual what they actually have to do because there's not any kind of public um, face of the domestic workers. So the way that they got to meet them was literally going and knocking on doors of wealthy houses and seeing who was inside. There has obviously been some resistance in different locations from um, the employers, but on the whole, not probably as much as you would expect. Like the idea that the workers have an organisation that is there to support them has not been met with too much animosity but yes they generally the the process that they that the women who are out there on the on the ground doing the research who are the employees of the working women's center and the ABI volunteer Bree is knocking on doors asking to see who's inside asking to meet with the employer explaining what they're on about and asking if they can have ask a few questions of the workers in the early days um, part of what was attractive to was was bringing women to the centre, and this is when they were mainly focused in just in Dili, was that they started to offer skills training because they realised early on that a lot of these young women were going in to do this domestic work in um, you know more affluent houses in the in the main city, but they themselves had come from houses that had no electricity, and so they'd never used an iron before, they'd never used a washing machine before, they didn't have sort of basic skills that had never done the work that they were expected to do. So the Working Women's Centre started offering training in those basic skills 
and also in literacy, so to assist the women to be able to better do their jobs, but also to provide an opportunity for them to network with other women in similar situations. Does that mean that before the centre was set up that the women were reliant on their employer to show them how to use the appliances and different things? Primarily, they were. Some of them are employed. So, on um, there's now a consultative group that's been pulled together by the Working Women's Centre, which is pushing forward with the changes to legislation so that domestic workers are accepted under labour law. So, there are employment agencies who are sort of like a labour hire companies for domestic workers, and they provided some skills. But on the large, on, on the whole, if the women were employed directly from the family or the home in in the city um, to the family in the rural area, then yes, there would be no, they would be expected to provide them with the skills and they didn't always do that, so these women felt quite helpless in their jobs. Did the researchers find that some of the women were expected to do certain jobs that they shouldn't be doing? What they found, that they, there was a big variation in terms of whether they were expected to do a range of domestic tasks as well as childminding tasks was probably the big difference. So that the ranges of tasks that they were expected to do varied dramatically from cooking and cleaning to also being sort of, you know, full-time carers in some cases for the children while the owners of the houses were working. Not necessarily skills that they weren't meant to be doing because there's no regulation about what they are and what they're not meant to be doing at this stage, but certainly that the, the, the expectations varied from, from home to home. What about the other two towns, Sway and so they've discovered similar kinds of patterns in both of those areas, in both of those towns, and um, the research kind of has brought out the variance, I suppose, in wages between the different locations. But really, the circumstances and the experiences of those workers is very similar. Where the workers came from varied. Obviously, um, they have a much higher percentage of domestic workers in Dili that came from one region, which tends to be, which is sort of recognised as one of the. I guess one of the poorer areas of East Timor, it's the coffee growing area of Emera, which is not too far from Dili, you can get there in about an hour and a half drive. So there was a higher percentage of workers coming from that area, which came with its own issues because there were often, there were many young women who were coming in who had no schooling education at all from that area. Whereas in Swai and Ukusi, they um, tended to have, they were from a little bit closer to where those, low, where those big cities were. They're not really big cities, but where those larger cities were. So that it was really more about where they're coming from. But the issues that they were experiencing were similar. I'd imagine too, no security of work or do they stay long in those jobs and move on to something else or is there something else? That's a very good question. I don't know, uh, I don't have that information on in my hands about where they would go to next. I guess that some women certainly stay for long periods of time um, and would stay with the same family for a long period of time. I'm not quite sure about where they would go to, what other kinds of work they would go to afterwards. There's not a lot of opportunities, not a lot of employment opportunities. Um, mostly it's in the informal sector for women. So whether it's the security probably comes around whether their employer is providing them with decent conditions and decent pay and allowing them to go back to their families for particular events and times of the year. But I don't know, actually, off the top of my head, what other work they would go into after leaving that work. Talk about the new legislation, the Timorese domestic workers' legislation. What's likely to happen with that? 
Well, it's it's very exciting, but it's in a it's in a bit of a holding pattern at the moment. Um, it's exciting because the draft legislation was put to the domestic workers themselves from the ministry, um, so SOFOPE, which is the Ministry of Employment, in June last year on International Domestic Workers Day. So this came the Working Women's Centre and a group of sort of strong activists from Dili organised an event on International Domestic Workers Day last year on June 16th. It was the first time that they'd ever done a sort of celebration of that day in Timor-Leste. And on that day, because they've been pushing for a long time for this to be some recognition, a representative from the ministry came in and presented the draft legislation, which was effectively saying that domestic workers are workers and that they should have similar conditions to other workers under the labour law of Timor-Leste. As with all first drafts, however, it was very, very exciting that that was created. But then once they looked at the detail of it, that they, the, the, the women from the Working Women's Centre and the other organisations that they formed this consultative committee with realised that there were lots of gaps and flaws in this first draft that had been sort of cobbled together from pieces of legislation from other areas and that they really needed to tighten it up because in some areas it was actually providing the domestic workers with less rights than they should have already had under the existing labour laws of Timor which are actually quite strong. They're not always implemented by employers, but they're actually quite... The, 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 law, the labour code in, in Timor-Leste is quite strong. So the next stage was that they developed a joint submission. We're identifying all of the flaws and gaps and, and things that they felt needed to be changed to bring that legislation up to par with the existing laws, but also providing specific protections for domestic workers that were, that were only related to their type of work, including maximum numbers of hours of work, their right to get paid overtime and the right to refuse overtime, protections around public holidays. That was another three or four months process after the original draft legislation was created that this group worked on this submission and then they presented that back to the Ministry and they had a public hearing and all of the representatives from the different bodies who were on the consultative committee, so that includes a whole lot of other NGOs and legal centres that just focus on women's rights in Timor-Leste, as well as the labour hire com companies and the working women's centres, so they all joined together with this joint submission and they were able to successfully get all of those changes agreed to by the existing representative from the government. Is there a, a, an employer's organisation as well? What was their input into it? No, not as much. Well, I suppose the closest thing to the employers' organisation is the labour hire firms, and they did have direct input into it, and they are obviously as keen... They were Well, not obviously, but they were keen to regulate the terms and conditions of the people that they were um, engaging as well, because it gave them some strength to be able to, you know, get an agreement with the employers that was going to be beneficial for the workers as well as for them, I suppose. So they've been part of this consultative committee and, and actively supporting, and then they've been supportive of the Working Women's Centre from the start really because they were offering skills training and other things that were going to benefit the workers themselves so um, they're not seen in, in an adverse way and there isn't really an employers group that like we would have here in Australia like the AAG or something like that that, that looks after the employers as domestic of, of employers of domestic labour. So all in all this is a, a great victory for the, the Working Women's Centre and the, and the women in Timor. Yeah, it's great. It's still it's still in process. Um, unfortunately, the political situation in Timor-Leste at the moment means that even though they've got full agreement on the changes to the draft legislation, the actual implementation of it is not going to happen now for a period of time because uh, last year there was a new government elected in Timor-Leste and it was 
a bit complicated in that neither of the major political parties won an absolute majority and so a minority government was formed with some of the smaller parties and then their supply has been blocked basically since August last year by the opposition to the point that the President in January, President Timor-Leste, actually dissolved the Parliament and has called for a new election. So now a new election is likely to occur in May and hopefully out of that we'll get a functioning government in Timor-Leste that will be able to then start implementing the, this law and a, and a bunch of other pieces of legislation that are backing up or draft legislation that's backing up at the moment. It's a victory, but it's not in, in our hands as yet. But certainly um, it's a fantastic vindication of the great work that the Working Women's Centre has been doing over a long period of time. And they're looking forward to the day when they're actually going to hold the actual legislation in their hands and that the working the working women working in domestic work in Timor-Leste are able to enjoy the benefits of those new laws. You were there a couple of weeks ago, Sam. Tell us about some of the women. They're great. <laughs> yeah, it's always an absolute pleasure to go to Timor-Leste and it's an extraordinary country with um, incredible people, very powerful histories and stories and very strong women from the families, both living out in the farm areas and running the communities there as well as the ones coming into the city. The Working Women's Centre is a really active space um, and a very positive space because it's working towards change and it's achieving change and it's giving a voice to women who were previously silenced. So I was able to sit in the Working Women's Centre, I was able to sit through one of the board meetings as well as um, one of the meetings of the consultative committee where all the other NGOs came in and it's um it's just a it's a very positive exciting feeling and also with there was a, a poster that was created for the International Domestic Workers Day last year which was um, designed by actually a Melbourne artist Sam Wallman which, um, generously designed a great poster around International Domestic Workers Day and that was everywhere so I, I was traveling around the country while I was there on this trip and there were po- that poster was turning up in all different locations so that was kind of exciting to see that their their voices um, their voices starting to be heard and people are starting to recognise that there is actually this whole group of workers right around the country who um, who are now standing up for their own rights and, and being listened to. So, yeah, it was a very good feeling. Great, Sam. Excellent. And I hope to speak with Sam again next week about the other projects for a feeder, which is Union Aid Abroad. There apparently there are six projects which they assist in Timor-Leste and... Um, Let's hope that next week on the program we'll be here. Sam talk about the other five after being very enthusiastic about the results of the Working Women's Centre in Timor-Leste. That's Sam Bond from AFIDA. Coming up to 20 minutes past five o'clock in a few moments, we'll be talking to Yusuf about Palestinian children in jails in Israel. But before that, let's have some community announcement and just a a reminder again that it is Listen Sponsor Drive on 3CR and you can come in in person to 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay your money. You can do it by phone on 9419 8377 or you can send your money in with a cheque, money order to 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or PO Box 1277 Collingwood. But do make an effort to support community radio. There is a great many challenges to community radio. There always is and there always will be, I'd imagine. But when you look at the the mess of commercial or corporate media at the moment, there's not a lot going for it. And um, you don't get a lot of the truth 
of what is actually happening, not only here in Australia but around the world. So that's nine four one nine eight three double seven, or PO Box one two seven seven Collingwood three zero six six to keep your community radio on air. Communities of Sound is a 3CR curated lineup of summer afternoon performances showcasing treaty, creative women and diverse cultures. Join us at the Fairfield Amphitheatre on Sunday, February 18th between 5 and 7.30pm to enjoy live performances from Kucha Edwards, Tando, the West Papuan Band, Sweet Dreams, Manisha Njali, June Jones and Danny Sib. Pack a picnic to share with friends and family or grab a tasty bite and bevy from the 3CR food store. That's Sunday, 18th of February, 5 till 7.30 p.m. at the Fairfield Amphitheatre. For further details, call 94198377 or check out our website at 3cr.org.au. Presented as part of the City of Yarra's Fairfield in Feb series alongside Play On and Melbourne Ukulele Collective. The city Ali MC and the Footscray Community Arts Centre present Rohingya Refugee Crisis in Colour, an exhibition that delves deep into the heart of the ongoing Rohingya refugee crisis. Featuring photography from both Ali MC and Rohingya refugees, a short documentary and stunning aerial drone footage. Head down to the opening at Footscray Community Arts Centre, 6pm on Thursday, February 8. The exhibition runs from February 9 until March 10. For more information, visit footscrayarts.com. A 3CR supporter. In La Mama's latest play, Roger has been drugged and attacked with an axe, his brother and daughter brutally killed. Roger is a rhino, a victim of poachers in South Africa. He is determined to recover. Kevin Summers and Liam Gillespie star in this short play, No Surrender, by Mike Smith, at La Mama Theatre, Carlton, February 7 to 18. Book by phone, 9347 6948 or at lamama.com.au. Because animals have feelings too. A 3CR supporter. Ahe Tamini spent her 17th birthday in an Israeli military prison, denied bail until her trial in a military court. Her crime? She slapped an Israeli soldier after Israeli soldiers entered her family courtyard on the 15th of December last year and refused to leave. Ahe is not alone. Around 500 to 700 Palestinian children are arrested, detained and prosecuted in the Israeli military court system each year and between 100 and 130 are currently in prison. To talk about the imprisonment of Palestinian children, I'm joined by Yusuf Al-Rimawe, a co-presenter of Palestine Remembered on 3CR. Yusuf, focusing first on the girl, her family and the village of Nabisala. First, the village. Life has changed drastically for the people in recent years. Can you explain how and why? 
Nabi Saleh is uh, a village near Ramallah in Palestine. We have a term in Arabic that we say qada, and qada uh, includes the proximity of villages around a major city. So, for example, I'm from a village called Beit Rima, qada Ramallah, which means probably one of 200 villages around Ramallah. Uh, Palestine, as you might imagine it, Palestine uh, is about 20 uh, major cities and towns, and every one of them will have around 200 villages especially that the topography there is uh, mountains and therefore you will see that uh, in Google Maps the distance between uh, the horizontal distance between villages uh, are three k's whereas in reality it's more than that because it involves uphill and downhill anyway so Nabi Saleh is a village near Ramallah and it also adjacent to the separation uh, wall like every village that is close to settlement slash wall and both of them they will feel the heavy presence of military and the heavy presence of abusive settlers on a daily basis uh, children on their way to school might be and are harassed by different forms verbally violently throwing stones spitting at them farmers also are uh, frequently and ongoingly attacked they have their kittle killed and stolen. They have their fields burnt. I'm sure you've heard and read about the uprooting of olive trees. And now this is a general situation of Palestinians in West Bank, but the intensity of this becomes bigger. The closer you get to the separation wall, the closer you get to one of the settlements. And uh, for Nabi Saleh, it's close to both of them. So that's why it is a heavy clashing point. And we have to reiterate that these settlements are illegal. All settlements are illegal, not illegal in my or your opinion only, uh, Jan. It's not only illegal in Australian law, not only illegal in international law, but also in, uh, some of them are illegal in Israeli law because some of the outposts was, were built even without Israeli permissions. So we're talking about stolen land because... The settlements in West Bank are on Palestinian private properties in, uh, mostly. So what they do is that they confiscate the private property for, let's say, two years for military reasons, for security reasons. And then all of a sudden we find that this property, this stolen property, uh, became the beginning of a construction post and a new settlement is built. Um, there is another level of settlement or another type of settlement activities in Jerusalem, because in West Bank you have the settlements mostly are on top of hills, can see it from far, uh, on top of mountains, whereas in Jerusalem it's a type called enclaved settlement where they might steal an apartment in a building, a roof of a building, and then they turn the life of the people around, around it into hell. But all settlements are illegal, unethical, stolen properties of Palestinians. And like many villages in the West Bank, the people have not accepted those settlers there. They have had demonstrations probably on a weekly basis. Since the beginning of the settler project, directly after the 67 war, the Palestinians have resisted in different forms. First form is direct clashes, uh, throwing stones. Uh, later, uh, there were, of course, because the settlements are heavily protected, so we, we're talking about complete separation between Palestinians and the settlers. And in a long list of other forms of resistance. But 
after the separation wall, the anti-wall protests have been organized every week, pretty much every week for, for, for more than 12 years now, 13 years. And there is the Palestinian Authority actually have small uh, ministry, they call it department of, uh, it's a para-ministry for anti-wall, anti-settlement, non-violent activities that looks after and uh, uh, administrate the, uh, the non-violent activities every week. So um, let alone the other um, civil society initiatives. And uh, we can mention, for example, a movie and book called Five Broken Cameras, where it talks about an inside story from Berlin uh, village near the wall. Uh, and it takes, it, it takes the viewers inside that village and what happens for these weekly demonstrations against the wall. Talk about the Tamimi family. The Tamimi family are from a Nabi Saleh village, and uh, they are the owners of the land, along with other families of that uh, village. And like uh, any other Palestinian village, the owners of the land take care of their property in different, uh, in, in, in all capacities. They live there, they farm, they uh, build uh, for their uh, kids around it. So this is their only asset in life, especially especially when you live under brutal occupation. So the Tamimi family in Nabi Saleh has had the legacy of resistance father, uh, generation after generation. We know Bassam Tamimi, but Bassam is not the only one in the family. Bassam's sister, for example, was murdered uh, in a military court when Bassam was in prison and she came to visit him. She was pushed of the staircase in a military course by a security guard and she she actually subsequently died in a few days because of that so when you go to a court place and expect justice to prevail and then you actually get attacked physically attacked uh, deliberately uh, for simply trying to visit your brother and that's his sister in the 93 and also Bassam uh, um, and his family and his uh, neighbors so but while like uh, Bassam said recently he might be the one who might be recognized uh, internationally but he gives the credit of all the Palestinians of Nabi Saleh and all the Palestinians of uh, West Bank who are on direct and open confrontation with occupation in different forms he was prevented from coming to Australia last year. Yes, this tells you something about, about our government, uh, that a man who is known for nonviolent uh, resistance is denied entry, whereas we welcome war criminals like Netanyahu with red carpet. It tells you how far we can, we as Australians and our government, are very far from neut- neutrality when it comes to the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. And even neutrality can be complicity when it is obvious who the victim and who the perpetrator are. But even though that it is obvious that the Palestinians have paid a heavy price over 70 years, they chose to side with the perpetrators of occupation. They chose to side with the perpetrators of Nakba and Naksa and statelessness and long list of injustices that the Palestinians had to live. One of the manifestations of that is the denial of the visa uh, of Bassem Tamimi. He was invited to speak at the Marxist conference last April, and uh, after giving him the visa, for, uh, he received an email saying that his visa was denied without further information. So it tells you that, you know, when it comes to 
to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, we are not uh, neutral. And uh, most people don't know that the Department of Immigration can be or, or, or may be the only department in Australian government uh, bureaucratic sphere that did not sign the Anti-Discrimination Act of 1992, which means that it is not illegal for them to discriminate. And, and this is another topic we can elaborate on, but you can't get an answer. You can't hold them responsible for something like that. Talk about his daughter, who's just turned 17. Ahad Tamimi, I think my first uh, memory of Ahad was seeing this blonde girl trying to break into the walls of soldiers to try and save her mother, who was arrested from home, and she was kicking and crying and screaming and yelling at soldiers, not fearing any of them, and trying to rescue and save his mother, her mother. And that was probably more than um, eight or nine years ago. This little girl has grown up, and in another footage, famous footage, trying to save her brother, her younger brother, whereas uh, you might see that footage when the soldier is actually talking the young boy, and she was trying to save her brother. And recently she became also, she came back to front pages of pro-Palestine media outlets uh, for her bravery in confronting soldiers inside her home because they broke without permission, of course, entering her home and she actually slapped one of them. She has been detained since then and uh, the Israeli authorities have accused her of a long list of nonsense uh, accusations and she has become the symbol of young resistance in Palestine. And I want to add something here. From a purely Orientalist approach, uh, the Israelis don't like this iconism when it comes to the Palestinian resistance because they don't want the Europeans and the Americans and the Australians to see a Palestinian who look like them. You know, she's blonde, she looks like Aussie girls, she looks like any American or European, and people might relate to it, and then it starts another topic of... Uh, so Ahad Tamimi has become the icon, but again, uh, she's not the only one. What happened to her family after... She did that. Um, I had uh, and her mother and her cousin were arrested on the same day. So far, her cousin is the only one who was released. Her mother is still uh, imprisoned, and her father has been trying to to do something. Is trying to put media pressure, to put advocacy pressure, and we have never ceased to uh, or stopped talking about the case of Ahed in our uh, uh, outlets. But it's devastating, you know. I mean, apart from all the advocacy and resistance, you know, he's a father. You see your daughter behind bars, and she's smiling and she's waving towards you. But you feel helpless. Uh, You can't do anything. You can't reach her. You can't give her a hug. You can't touch her hand. And this feeling of helplessness uh, is devastating, uh, especially when you know that she is arrested uh, for simply trying to defend her private property and for simply trying to follow the footpath of her father and grandfather and all Palestinians in resisting occupation. And, of course, she's not the only child no, in the prison. No, she's, 
She's not the only child. That's, uh, thank you, Jan, for uh, this question. In fact, uh, in, uh, in Israel, we're talking about uh, not only uh, minors in, in Israeli prisons, but also female prisoners. And I can mention Malak Al-Ghalid uh, from uh, uh, Jalazun uh, camp near uh, Ramallah. She was uh, arrested when she was uh, 16, and she is still in jail. I can also mention Malak Salman. She's currently 17. She was was arrested in 2016 in uh, Jerusalem. Also, Nurhan Awad, she's currently 16, and she was arrested when she was 14, she was 13 and a half, for no good reason. And these, all these teenagers, all these ch- children are uh, imprisoned and are accused for assumptions, for thinking that they might pose danger to the <laughs> mighty army of Israel. There is Istabraq Noor. She is currently 15 and she was imprisoned when she was 14. Uh, there is also Shuruq Dwayat. Uh, she received more than 16 years in, in, in prison for just assuming that she was going to attack a soldier who actually started assaulting her. And I will end with Marah Bakir. Marah Bakir from Jerusalem. She is currently 16. And she was imprisoned when she was 15. And she was taken to prison with a broken hand. And she was denied treatment for, for more than 10 months. Can you imagine having a broken hand without treatment for 10 months? Medical negligence inside Israeli prisons is a systematic approach to put more pain, to inflict more pain on the Palestinians and to make their life more miserable. So, yes, Ahad might be the most famous, but she is not the only one. I guess this is another reminder that Israel needs to be taken accountable for its injustices and, uh, and violations. What sort of a, a judge or a court sentences children to jail? For example, if I take the uh, case of uh, Shuruq uh, Dwayat from uh, Jerusalem, she was uh, shot by a settler, and uh, while she was trying to uh, resist and defend herself, she was accused of killing that settler who shot her. And she now has to spend 16 years in prison and to pay 21,000 shekels as a fine. So we're talking about ridiculous level of uh, court system and the conviction rate uh, in uh, Israel when it comes to the Palestinians is 99.7 something percent. That's nearly 100 percent. That's higher than the conviction rate in China. Is that because if you don't plead guilty you get a higher charge, a higher penalty? Look, Israeli laws are only transparent and uh, are only fair when it comes to the trials of Jewish citizens of Israel. But when it comes to the trials of the Arabs of Israel, that's another level of marginalization and treating them like second-class citizens. However, all of a sudden, when it comes to the treatment of people from West Bank, and these are the people under occupation, uh, including uh, Jerusalem, this law that sounds like it belongs to the developed countries become all of a sudden martial, militant, and even worse than uh, totalitarian countries like China. So triple standards, not even double standards, triple standards, and we get, we Palestinian, the landowners, get the worst. And that's the military court. That's the military court. Because they're under occupation. Look, Palestinians in West Bank don't get to see Israeli police. 
whereas uh, settlers for their crime or anything or law and order they don't get to see the Israeli army so it's the same geographical location the Arabs, the landowners are only treated by the military and the army and the settlers, the imported, the foreign bodies get the civil treatment and are uh, governed by the police and this type of, you know, treatment that, you know, Palestinians belong to the military part of the state, not the civil part of the state, has been a very long approach by the Israelis. And even the Palestinians of Israel, the Arab Israelis, what they call them, they lived for 18 years. The first 18 years of Israel, the Arabs of Israel, the 22% of the population, lived under martial law, not under civil law. And if you read the diaries of Mahmoud Darwish and the other famous Palestinian writers in the 50s and 60s, they talk about living as a refugee in your own homeland and being treated by the military governor, not by the police. And of course, segregation and curfews and a long list of uh, decisions that Israelis uh, imposed on the Palestinians of Israel for the first 18 years. And we can mention the massacre of uh, Kufr Qasim in 56. Kufr Qasim is a village in 48 areas and the farmers were out in the field and uh, during their absence the Israeli authorities decided that there is a curfew. And they didn't know that there was curfew imposed in their absence. And when they returned, so it looked like they violated the curfew and they shot them dead and killing more than 35 of them. So that's a tiny example. Just going back to the children in the jails, you said medical help is pretty scarce. What about the other conditions, like seeing a family, Denial, seeing a yeah. lawyer? Mm. What sort of a prison are they kept in? First of all, any Palestinian prisoners, child or an adult, when they are arrested, they spend two or three weeks of non-stop interrogation. And this interrogation might take hours and hours and hours. And, you know, the Israelis change shift and then the uh, people finish their duty and then other people join in and to continue. So the sleep deprivation during the, the interrogation period physical and uh, non-physical torture and pressure, denial of going to bathroom, denial of going to wash up, denial of uh, seeing your own lawyer or your, your parents. The, this is in the time that they are still interrogating and they are getting information before even bringing the case to court. Now when the case is brought to a military court and then they are uh, lucky enough to have a verdict because the majority of Palestinians inside Israeli prisons are there under administrative accusation, which means that it gets renewed every six months. It gets renewed every six months without being accused. There's no accusation. If they are lucky enough to have, to have been accused, then they know that they have to, to serve a particular time in prison. But then starts a long list of other injustices. It includes denial of seeing lawyers, denial of seeing parents, or limited visits. Uh, the, the visits have been uh, narrower and narrower, narrower with time. And this is the reason why our political prisoners last uh, October decided to go on an open hunger strike, because the level of mistreatment inside Israeli prisons have been unprecedented and so are uh, and were so inhumane, still are, uh, although that they managed to make some breakthroughs and to impose their their will 
over the Israelis. So we're talking about torture, we're talking about violence, we're talking about abuse, we're talking about denial of treatment, denial of visits, and also mistreatment of their own families. And I want to mention that Israel, according to international law, should not imprison the people of West Bank in areas outside West Bank. And this is in, agreed upon by international law. Whereas all the Israeli prisons are inside Israeli proper. So they are in 48 areas. And you can imagine what it means for the parents of the, for the prisoners when they want to visit, when they are taken by the Red Cross to visit their children. Because they are treated like they are foreigners in the country because they are not from there. So there is a long list of treatment. For example, you have to wake up at 4 to be picked up from your city at 6 and to hopefully see your son at around 1 or 2 in the afternoon if you are lucky enough for 5 minutes or 10 minutes and then by the time you make it back you have it, 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 it'll be 6 p.m. again. So spending 12 hours or more for seeing your son or loved one for not more than five minutes. This is what it means to be a, a relative of a prisoner, and this is what it means for the prisoners to be also deprived from nearly everything. And the psychological impact on children of those conditions? Absolutely. You, you can imagine the time that the children need to be protected, need to be given care, need to be given guidance by their parents, by their school, by their community, in their upbringing. And, you know, all of us, the most critical period of our time was in our childhood, was not when we were mature enough to, to battle through. And if this critical, if this bottleneck of your life, you were in the hands of the oppressor, you can imagine what kind of damage they can do to your life until you actually, for the rest of your life. Not to mention deprivation of education, not to mention deprivation of socializing with your own community, and not to mention the other forms of abuse and violence and deprivation inside an Israeli jail. If you have a medical situation, you add to it medical negligence, the systematic medical negligence that are in, uh, deliberately designed to cause more pain and to inflict more harm on people. So when they are released in five or ten years, they will never be n normal or, or live a normal life. Is there any estimate of how many children over those years have suffered under this system? Since 1967, nearly 900,000 Palestinians of West Bank spent one month or more in Israeli prisons. This is nearly 30% of the population including including like in every given time in history since 1967 you have 100 plus children today we're talking about 110 and, and, uh, and 10 uh, last year it was similar the year before god knows uh, the number of teenagers under uh, 18 who uh, so so constantly you have from 100 to 200 children in israeli prisons what's the campaign at the moment there is a campaign that uh, a group of Australians launched last year. It's called Australians for Palestinian Prisoners. And they have a Facebook page and people can like it and, and share uh, information. Uh, when it comes to, uh, I think we need a particular campaign 
for the children prisoners, uh, Jam, to be honest, because the children, we don't need to explain why, because it's against every level of ethics and laws. And I know, especially in Australia, the treatment of children may be the, one of the most sensitive issues, and the laws in Australia have zero tolerance towards the mistreatment of children, towards any form of mistreatment. So um, I think the time has come for us Australians to speak to our local MPs and to expect them to comment on their position on the imprisonment of Palestinian children in Israeli prisons. This issue is not an alien uh, issue. This issue touches our core human rights and it touches our essential uh, definition of being moral moral people and therefore our local and federal MPs have to justify why they've been silent towards the mistreatment of Palestinian children when it comes to the Israeli-Australian relations. And also the fact that many of those politicians have actually been to Israel and don't go to Palestine. They've been to Israel on fully paid trips and they, their visits are normally designed to be like a touristic project. They see the historic uh, locations of historical Palestine or they see what says the Israeli narrative and the Israeli propaganda and they don't spend equal or proportionate time in the Palestinian territories. And there has been efforts by APAN and other Palestinian advocates to ask our MPs to spend equal time in Palestinian territories. Otherwise, their visit to the region is imbalanced. And I think the time has come for our politicians to include the treatment of Palestinian children and Israeli prisons in their agendas, in their, in their discussions with Israeli counterparts. I know the Israelis want to avoid the political part and they want to focus on trade and they want to focus on security and exchange for information and other things, but it's not up to them. If we really are a country of high standard, high moral, high morality, we have to prove that uh, we don't pick and choose. The arena to prove it is Palestine. Thanks, Yusuf. Thank you, Jan. And that was Yusuf Al-Rimawi, one of the co-presenters of Palestine Voice, Palestine Remembered, which is broadcast here at 3CR every Saturday morning between 9.30 and 10 o'clock. One of the other co-presenters is Robert Martin, and he travelled to Israel and Palestine late last year and he interviewed Basim Tamini, the father of Ahmed. And hopefully we'll be hearing that interview in the coming weeks and also I'll be speaking with Robert to talk more about what it was like in Palestine late last year. So that's um, in the coming programs and not to be missed. They're the reasons why people support community radio. We've had a Palestinian program here virtually from the beginning and it's always it was in, in Arabic for many, many years but now the Palestine Remembered program is actually in English and it makes it a lot easier to get through to our English-speaking listeners to 
let them know what is actually happening in Palestine today. So that's on the program in coming weeks. I hope it might be next week, but we'll see how things go. Coming up very, very soon, it's done by law, but before then, let's have a few more community announcements and see what's happening here. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Definitely something to have. I think I've got about three or four at home now, but they're absolutely beautiful designs that you can buy now. You can buy the traditional black and white or red and white, but the, the patterns and the colours are absolutely stunning out of the factory in Palestine. So call in here one day and just have a look at all the ones that we have here, the different colours, the different patterns, or speak to a staff member on 94198377 and they'll be able to describe them to you. They're just definitely something that you could have, should have, and all the profits from the sale of those scarves go back into Palestine. Let's hear one more announcement about the subscriber drive that number to ring during office hours is a bit late now during office hours is nine four one nine eight three double seven or you can send money order check to PO box one two seven seven Collingwood it's thirty five dollars for unemployed seventy five dollars for employed and if you're really really rich and really really enthusiastic it's a hundred and fifty dollars for, well, just because you're enthusiastic about 3CR. So that's 94198377 and P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood. There is listener sponsors who keep the radio station going. When you become a listener sponsor, you get a part of this radio station. You get a little part of it. It's yours. You get a little share of it. It's 3CR Subscriber Drive and we're asking you to show your love for 3CR. Support your favourite show by calling us on 9419 8377 or online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. $35 unwaged, $70 waged or 150 solidarity. Subscribe to 3CR today. People lining up uh, out in the street, uh, out in Swiss Street and Collingwood, lining up to take out their listener sponsorship. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. 
Years in the Making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Well, that is all for me today. I will be back next week week at four o'clock right through to six but coming up in about two minutes time done by law bye for now